Money FM 89.3, the best of the breakfast huddle. Mind your business with the breakfast huddle only on Money FM 89.3. Money FM 89.3. Good morning. It's The Breakfast Huddle. I'm Elliot Danker. It is time now for Mind Your Business. And this is something that we've discussed a lot. You know, I'm sure, you know, you would have heard about how investors lost a lot of confidence after FTX's collapse. That, of course, led to increased withdrawals, putting many crypto firms and lending platforms at liquidity risk. Yet, despite attractive insolvency regimes in the West, many companies are choosing Singapore to be their restructuring jurisdiction. Yes, in fact, in 2022 alone, Alone, and of course, amid a wider industry downturn, exchanges like Zipmex, uh, Holdnet, and Vlod, and crypto financial services firms like Equinox have applied for bankruptcy protection or some kind of debt restructuring in Singapore courts. So should we expect to see more of such cases of insolvency in the coming year? And what are some of the unique features of our legal framework that makes it so attractive as a restructuring jurisdiction You know, for these uh, crypto platforms and companies? Well, on the line with me this morning is Jansen Chow, who is co-head fraud, asset recovery and investigations for Raja and Tan. Good morning, Jansen. Hi, good morning, Elliot. Let's talk about the uptick in crypto platforms applying for bankruptcy protection or debt restructuring in Singapore courts. I suppose on the surface, what are some of the factors that have contributed to the interest to come here and sort of restructure? Well, I mean, I I think there are a couple of uh, reasons. I think the first thing to really think about is where Singapore has positioned itself as sort of a very supportive uh, jurisdiction for crypto businesses, I think even before all these had started. I mean, back in quite early on, 2020, 2019, I think you've seen quite a substantial investment. And of course, Singapore has always put forward a very good case as being a favorable business condition. So we do see that quite a lot of these businesses and platforms, they are based in Singapore. Either they've got a holding company incorporated here, or you would see their management or, or some parts of their business are run through Singapore. So from that perspective, it's quite natural for them when it comes to a insolvency situation to then also seek protection of the Singapore courts here, primarily because a lot of their assets are here. So they want to make sure that enforcement actions are not taken. Again, I think in terms of Singapore, we've always set ourselves to be sort of an international hub for insolvency matters. And really in the past few years, we've seen a number of changes to the sort of legal framework that facilitates this. I think back in 2018, 2017, I think there was an introduction of the new um, insolvency uh, omnibus provision. I think with the Insolvency Restructuring and Dissolution Act, call it short IRDA, that essentially facilitates uh, recognition of foreign insolvency proceedings. And to really understand how this works, previously there's a situation where if someone is insolvent in a particular jurisdiction, the liquidators might have to go to the different jurisdictions to apply for the winding up in order to get recognition and to take orders and to take enforcement of efforts there. But with this, I think this made it more seamless. I think the Singapore courts would recognize, for instance, a BVI insolvency proceeding and they would recognize, for instance, if it's the business is actually, although it's incorporated there, a lot of the business is run through here that allows them to have jurisdiction in Singapore. So that's really facilitated quite a bit of the situation where a lot of them seek protection here. And I think going forward, I think you might even see an increased attempt to improve this. Quite recently in October 2022, Singapore courts actually have made amendments such that the cross-border insolvency international kind of matters can be heard before the Singapore International Commercial Court. So again, I think that really just opens up the sort of borderless nature of the judiciary that we have here in support Mm -hmm. of insolvency. 
Yeah, that has come a long way, uh, especially with the amount of paperwork involved. It's great that everything can come through one place. I mean, just just on the back of that, right, with this whole crypto contagion effect, um, could you help us understand the kind of ripple effect it's had on the platforms seen here in Singapore? Well, I think you've mentioned some. We've seen uh, quite a few of them, Zipmax, Hortonaut, um, uh, Vault coming down. And it's also quite a situation where if, if you look at the timelines, um, that's where the contagion, in fact, you probably discussed this quite a bit on your show. If you look back, you've got Terra, Luna going down in May. Yeah. Um, yeah. Vault, Vault, Self, uh, Zipmax, Hortonaut, I think they all started to apply for protection in July. So they're all very tightly linked. Three Arrows, for instance, I think was one one to be quite badly hit. That was in June, July. They sought bankruptcy in BVI in the US and they also sought recognition in, in Singapore. So it's been quite a bit of, everything's been coming quite quickly on the back of each other. Mm-hmm. Jensen, I want to get to a little bit more of a, a fun uh, part here. What is the difference between crypto bankruptcy and traditional bankruptcy? Because when I was a young law student, I used to work part-time and help people fill bankruptcy <laughs> forms. Right? You get $50 a form. I, I, I feel like you may have gone through that path as well. Uh, what are the differences between the two? Well, I, I think if you're getting $50 a form now, you'll probably make a lot of money. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I should get back into it. <laughs> Maybe you should consider. Because, I mean, now you look at the crypto entities and platforms, yeah, you're really yeah. talking about hundreds and thousands of customers worldwide. And the numbers is so difficult to, to manage. What we've seen the liquidators do in a lot of these matters is that they've tried to automate the process. Mm-hmm. So they've set up uh, platforms, they've tried to use technology so that when you put in a claim for a proof of debt or you put in your details, they try to match it internally with whatever records that they have. If not, it's just physically almost almost impossible to deal with that. So we've seen liquidators themselves try to step up the game and move towards a different direction of how the traditional um, bankruptcies are dealt with. In fact, if you see FTX, for instance, they even set up a official Twitter page <laughs> where you can actually go there for the official news and all the documents and filings that have been yeah. done in the US courts are all contained there. So this is quite different from what, well, you would have seen back in the day mm. in a law firm. And generally, you know, law firms tend to avoid technology, but increasingly, I think this is something that has to be done. Oh, yeah. Talk about avoiding technology. That's another conversation for another day. <laughs> but the assets, I mean, does it expand to, say I'm a crypto, again, I'm just trying to understand this a little uh-huh. bit better. Say I'm one of those crypto firms, I want to declare bankruptcy. Does it include the physical assets that I have or, or just my crypto assets in that sense? Everything includes, I mean, once you go into a liquidation, right. all the assets essentially is taken over control by the liquidators. That then has to be managed and then they would realize the assets, sell them off and try to pay off the creditors. I think what you would see that's quite different in a crypto insolvency is really how do you, the assets, I mean, I think that's the, the main issue and a lot of them, that is where the primary value lies. I mean, we all know about the volatility of crypto assets. You know, some of the difficulties that a liquidator face when they first step in, it's always, what do I do with them? You know, do I hold on to them? Mm-hmm. What if the value drops in a week? Am I going to, you know, lose in value? Or should I hold on to them because they're on the uprise? You know, mm-hmm. it puts them in a very difficult position. Yeah. But even before that, you would see that a lot of them are facing even a bigger question as to where the assets are. It's not the days of past where, for instance, you see a tangible physical asset, like an oil barrel, you know, yeah. you can see it in a warehouse can send someone down, I can count the barrels. Yes. Crypto assets, how is it held? You know, there's so many ways that it can be done with. It can be kept in a wallet. Yeah. And then the question becomes, do you know where, where the wallet is? Mm. Do you know the person who has the private key to access that wallet? Worse, if it's held in a cold wallet, you know, it might be in a thumb drive that's tucked away in someone's desk. How do you get access to that? And some of the methods that we've been advising, there's some of the practical problems that a lot of the liquidators do face quite early on. It's quite shocking that hundreds and millions of assets 
can be <laughs> can be held in such a precarious manner. Yeah, yeah. You can't paste a sticker on it to put it up for auction like in the old days. Is there a possibility of, I'm not trying to get any issues here, but have we encountered cases where, and if we're talking about an individual, how complicated is it to, and, and this is just individual bankruptcy, right? Um, you, you file for bankruptcy, you've got to, gotta, again, paste the stickers on the physical assets. You're trying to find the crypto assets and they get away with it by, I don't know, transferring assets. Is this a common problem that you guys might have encountered? In a way, yes. I think transfer of crypto assets is an issue. Okay. Uh, if you follow some of the news. The funny thing about the crypto assets is on the one hand, it's sort of uh, anonymous. You don't know who is going to and from. It's meant to be pseudo-anonymous. But yet at the same time, everything's happening on the blockchain. Mm-hmm. So the funny thing that you see in a lot of the insolvency proceedings is the number of people who are able to track the information. And you see a lot of information being tracked over Twitter, for instance. Mm-hmm. So people are monitoring like three arrows when they were on the way down. A huge amount of assets are being transferred from wallets associated with three arrows to somewhere else. You know, people were tracking that. They were concerned about that. So it is something that happens quite a bit mm. because the transfers can happen quite quite quickly. Mm. I, I guess just on more of an educational note, and I know you touched a, a little bit on this, say a, a person files for bankruptcy and he's or, or she has assets overseas, like physical assets, like a property. Mm. The jurisdictions involved here, the hoops you have to jump here versus this person has crypto assets overseas. Is, is it harder to get jurisdiction to seize those crypto assets? I think it depends on how the assets are held. Okay. So if it's held in a wallet and you have access to the wallet, you have the private key, um, I see. usually that's not a big issue. You can do I it see. electronically. A bigger issue perhaps is when it's held through an exchange. Then you need to consider how do you get the exchange to comply with an order. Say, for example, the exchange is based in BVI. Okay. Right? How do you get them to comply with a Singapore court order or yeah. a Singapore liquidator? So that becomes a, a bit of a challenge. And you add to that, a lot of these exchanges, they, they don't even have a sort of a, a clear jurisdictional nexus. Yeah. Um, Binance, for instance, I mean, we know that it started, you know, back in the day in China. When it clamped down, they moved to Malta. When Malta mm. clamped down, they mm-hmm. moved again. Even just a few years back, I think they said quite clearly that they don't even have a head office. The head office is where the CEO sits. So trying to find a jurisdiction nexus sometimes to get compliance from the exchange is also not easy as well. Mm. What have you heard with regard to that conversation? I mean, it's a constant conversation about having some kind of regulation. You feel that that's going to allay any fears, but it still comes down to company-to-company cooperation Um, or country-to-country cooperation. um, A lot of it, yes. Um, I think a lot of countries, a lot of jurisdictions are still trying to grapple with this. So it's actually a very, very difficult question to answer. I mean, people would think surely the easiest thing is to just increase the regulation, yeah. right? Protect everyone, right? But you've also got to look at the background as to how crypto developed. It's always meant to be a bit of a anti-establishment. Yeah. The companies and people that are involved in, they yeah. are not usually the, the more compliant kind. So there's always a bit of resistance. <laughs> and because they can move their, their businesses across jurisdictions, for instance, I mean, if, if, if Singapore says, oh, I'm going to start to increase regulation, some of them mm-hmm. might say, look, maybe not the most favorable jurisdiction for me to be in. And a drop of a hat, they can move to Dubai. Mm-hmm. So it's a balance that everyone is trying to, to seek at the moment. Mm, okay. Jetson, what are some of the avenues available to investors in crypto bankruptcies compared with traditional bankruptcies? A lot of it still comes under the traditional bankruptcy regime protection that's already there. Ah. It's a bit different from, say, you're dealing with a financial institution, okay. which has regulations, say, you need to have a deposit insurance for the accounts, or you need to have clear segregation rules in terms of your customer funds. That's not really something that's 
found in the crypto space at the moment. Okay. okay. So, and a lot of it depends on the mechanisms that are built into the insolvency proceed regime okay. to protect creditors, protect investors in that sense. So you've got your clawback provisions mm. where if a company goes into liquidation, a, a liquidator can step in, look at the accounts, look at the records, investigate financial transactions and try to claw back unfair preferences or undervalued transactions. On top of that, of course, the liquidators themselves can start actions on behalf of the company against any wrongdoing that's done. Mm-hmm. For instance, if they say that the crypto entity said that, oh, I've actually kept your monies in a segregated account, but they didn't, then of course that might potentially lead to a, a legal proceedings and try to go after the individuals that are responsible for that. So that is sort of an enforcement point, point of view. I think what has sort of developed in a slightly different way is to try to see whether crypto assets themselves um, can be considered property that's capable of being held on trust. Oh. Uh, because that then gives you a, a secured right. And in any insolvency, uh, most creditors, what you try to do is always try to place yourself as a secured creditor. And that gives you priority over payment. So big debate always in the legal world as to whether it's a property, but I think that's really something that's quite, quite, quite oh. technical. But increasingly, we've seen a lot of courts, not just in Singapore, but I think overseas, especially in the insolvency context, being quite prepared to hold, at least on a preliminary view, that it is a property capable of being held in trust. And hence, there's a possibility that a customer or an investor sits in a sort of secured creditor position. But again, that differs. I think we've seen different jurisdictions or different cases deal with it differently depending on the terms and conditions. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's going to open another whole new discussion. Oh, very interesting. I've been speaking with Jensen Chan, who's the co-head of Fraud Asset Recovery and Investigations at Raja and Tan. Jensen, I appreciate your time this morning. Take care and have a great day ahead. You too. Thank you, Ray. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SBH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.